right, how to study the Bible. We continue with only a few weeks left. And uh, as always, with reference to this work called Grasping God's Word as our primary source. Um, and we are at the point where we have covered a great deal. We've, we've covered how to read, particularly how to do careful reading and investigation of the text, which is the foundation of our ability to study. And we've, we've focused on context. We've spent time over the past couple of weeks focused on historical context and literary context both. Tonight I want to give you one more tool in your study efforts, and that is how to do word studies. Now, I want you to think for a moment, when you hear a preacher start talking about the Greek language, do you sigh or do you get excited? Raise your hand if you are a sire when you hear the Greek language brought up. Yeah, I know. That's why I do it, I do it fairly sparingly. There are some preachers who feel like the Greek has to come out every sermon, and I just don't believe that's necessary for everybody. Um, and nor am I that skilled in it, so I don't feel like that's something that has to be done in every sermon you preach. But it's also something that, is, that, that does not have to be limited to just the preachers and Bible class teachers to do. There is some degree of that you can do yourself with the right tools, and we're going to talk about that through the course of this evening. But sometimes word studies are necessary. There are, uh, in your study of God's Word, there are going to be times where you need to understand the, the word that's appearing before you better than you have before. And, not, and sometimes you need to understand what the, the Greek or Hebrew word behind the word you're looking at really means to help you understand the passage. So, word studies. The aim of a word study is to try to understand as precisely as possible what the author was trying to convey in his use of this word in this context. As readers, we do not determine the meaning of biblical words. Rather, we try to discover what the biblical writer meant when he used a particular word. It's not our... We're working through translation. We need to understand what is meant by the original context of a word, not what we want to read into it. So word studies will be necessary from time to time. And what I want to do now is work through you, with you on some, some uh, fallacies about word studies or some wrong ways to go about studying words in Scripture. One such fallacy is called the English-only fallacy. The English-only fallacy occurs when you base your word study on the English word rather than the underlying Greek or Hebrew word. And as a result, you draw unreliable or misleading conclusions. Now, the Bible was not originally written in English. We have talked about that. So it's translated into English from the original biblical languages. And this can complicate word studies for students who do not know the original languages. See, there's two uh, ways in which you can have, this can create a problem for you. Number one, a word in Hebrew or Greek is often translated into English by a number of different English words. You can take a, uh, you can take a word in Greek, and when you, it can have multiple words in English that it connects to, that it can translate into. Man, it really happens when you get into Greek prepositions. You can have about 20 different English prepositions that can come from that one Greek preposition. And that's not necessarily something uh, you're going to, to know if you're not memorizing Greek, or, or Greek words. But the reality is when you're dealing in any translated language, whether you're going from English to another language or from another language into English, it doesn't matter which language it is, words aren't going to match exactly. There are going to be meanings behind Greek and Hebrew words that are more, more multifaceted than the English. So here's an example of a Greek word. The Greek word paraklesis is translated in NIV because that's what the text this book uses with the following English words, comfort, encouragement, appeal, be encouraged, consolation, encourage, encourage, encouraging message, exhortation, greatly encouraged, preaching urgently. Now you can see that the idea of encouragement encompasses a lot of those words. But the idea of comfort and exhortation in English can be two very different things. 
So there is a broader range of meaning behind this one Greek word than just encouragement. And there's a broader range of meaning than, than one word in English can convey. And so you need to understand that just because uh, a word gets translated into English from the Greek, that doesn't mean that's the only way that word can be translated. Context will give you the clue as to how to translate it or what to translate it. But you, we need to understand that we can't base our word study just on English because the word underlying that English term in the Greek or the Hebrew could have multiple meanings. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Now, the other thing you need to know when it comes to this fallacy or the other problem that can happen is that different words in Hebrew or Greek can be translated into English using the same English word. Now, there can be two different Greek words that mean the same thing in one, as one English word. So this is the reverse of the previous one. And to give you an example of that, the NIV translates these different Greek words. There's one, two, three, four, five, six, six different words on the screen there. All of them can be translated comfort. Six different words that can be translated comfort. The one that you probably are familiar with and, and don't really may not even be thinking about is the word love. In English, we have the word love. You can go over into Greek and you can have four or five different terms that mean love. So we have the, this situation where there can be more Greek words than... You can have a bunch of Greek words that mean one English word. Or you can have a bunch of English words that mean one Greek word. So you, you don't have a one-for-one one ratio when it comes to translating. That's the idea. And so you don't need to just buy into... Uh, this mindset that if I can understand the English word that appears in my English Bible, then that's good enough, because that's not. That would be an English-only fallacy. Another issue is the root fallacy. Some people believe that if they can just figure out what the root of the Greek word or the Hebrew word meant, then they'll, uh, they'll, know what the, the, they'll know how to translate the word or they'll understand the word just by doing an etymo etymological background on it. But as this statement says, one of the most more common fallacies is the notion that the real meaning of a word is found in its original root, in the etymology of the word. It is true that a word's individual parts may accurately portray its given meaning, but only if the context supports such a meaning. So give context priority over etymology. That's a theme throughout everything we're going to say about word studies here, is that context is what's most important. Here's an example. Using the English, what's a butterfly? What's the root of the term butterfly? Is a butterfly actually a fly that lost control and crash-landed into butter? If you were to go search for the etymological root of butterfly, and you said, okay, I've got butter and I've got fly, so this must be flying butter or a fly that has landed in butter. That's not going to get you anywhere. A pineapple. Certainly that has to be a kind of apple that grew on a pine tree, right? See, if you just are taking the two words that are combined to make this one and try to say, okay, I know what an apple is, I know what a pine is, so they must go together to form a, a tree that produces this fruit, that's not how it works. In Greek, the same thing happens. You're going to have words that are built off of two different words made into one new word, and the thing that we like to do is just to parse out the two original words and say, that gives me my meaning. But it doesn't always work that way. What's a sawhorse? Is it a horse that was sawn in two? Is it a horse that you laid eyes on? No. You see, you can't always just go for the roots, the root words that make up a word. You've got to do a little bit more investigation than that. Here's a Greek example. You have this word gnosko, which means to know or understand or recognize. But then there's another term, anagnosko, which means to read or read aloud. They're not exactly the same. You can't just break up the anagnosko into its two parts and get the words you want. Just because a, a root word exists inside of a word does not mean that that root word is the basis of the word. So you've got to be careful there. Now there's also... The time frame fallacy. 
The time frame fallacy occurs when we latch onto a late word meaning, usually a meaning popular in our own time, and read it back into the Bible, or when we insist that an early word meaning still holds when in fact it has since become obsolete. But you're going to encounter the first, uh, the, the former rather than the latter. A lot of times we take our knowledge of a word meaning and put it back on a word before that meaning ever existed. Here's what I mean. Here's an example. If you go to Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, there's this word translated power. The gospel is the power unto salvation. That word translated power in Greek is dunamis or, or dynamis. It's the word from which we get the word dynamite, based on that Greek term. And some preachers want to say, hey, when I encounter this word power in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, it's envisioning the power of dynamite. But dynamite didn't exist in the first century. Nobody knew what dynamite was. Paul didn't know what dynamite was when he wrote this verse. And so to read it in the context of dynamite is to put a meaning on it that did not exist at the time. The word dynamite descended from the same word that appears here, but is not the meaning of that word. So you can't project backwards onto the text something that is new today. Um, so you have to be careful about this time frame fallacy of giving meaning to a word based on knowledge that exists today. Because if that knowledge didn't exist then, you have a problem. All right. Another issue, the overload fallacy. This is, occurs when um, you take all the meanings in the Greek language for one word and apply it every time you see that word. If you see a word in Greek and say, all right, I'm going to assume it, it means everything that that Greek word means, then you're overloading it with too much content. That is not the right way for doing a word study. Here's an example in English to help you see what I mean. Take the English word spring. That can refer to a season, a metal coil, an act of jumping, or a source of water. Now, when you see the word spring in a sentence, you don't assume it means all four of those things. You let the context tell you which one it means. So you have to allow context to teach you what definition or what meaning applies to the word in the text. Also, the word count fallacy. This is the belief that every time a word appears in the text of Scripture, it's got to mean the same thing. If you came across seven instances of that word meaning this, and you come across an eighth instance, you might feel like you should just go ahead and assume it means the same thing as those previous seven instances, which is kind of the example that I give. But that's not how it works. Context decides the meaning. So you, you can't just go with the numbers, is what I'm saying. This word count fallacy is a mistake we make when we insist that a word must have the same meaning every time it occurs. And so, every time you see a word, uh, don't just draw a conclusion based on how it had been used in another book. You need to let context influence its meaning in that instance. Okay, word as concept fallacy. This is, we fall prey to this when we assume that once we have studied one word, we have studied an entire concept. All right, this one really works well when I give the example. If you want to discover what the New Testament says about the church, you should certainly study the word translated church, ecclesia, something we talked about just a couple of Sundays ago. But it would be a mistake to conclude that once you studied ecclesia, you will know all that the New Testament says about the church. Do you know why? Because there are other terms used in reference to the church, like the body of Christ, temple of the Holy Spirit, the household of faith. So you can't conclude that you have the whole concept of what church is just by studying that one word, ecclesia. To get the full concept of what church is, you really need to study all the terms that apply to the church, which we did not do two Sundays ago, but that was intentional. Um, 
So the word as concept fallacy is the idea that I can't assume that studying one word gives me everything I need to know about a concept. I need to study all the different words that apply to that concept to get the concept. And finally, one other fallacy, selective evidence fallacy. When we cite just the evidence that supports our favored interpretation or when we dismiss evidence that seems to argue against our view, we commit the selective evidence fallacy. This error is particularly dangerous because here we are intentionally tampering with the biblical evidence, whereas in other fallacies, the mistakes may be unintentional. So before you begin studying a word in the Bible, make up your mind to accept all the evidence. I think this happened with the term for predestination in the Bible. When you hear predestination, that sets alarm bells off in your head. But it's a completely biblical term. But what happens is everybody goes to that term with their preconceived notions, and they tend to rule out any other possibilities. But it's a biblical term, and if you study it without, any, um, with, 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 not without buying into this fallacy— you'll get a good idea of what it really means. And it, what it really means is that a, the, the church has been chosen by God, and if you're in the church, you're predestined for heaven. As an individual, you are not. As a collective body, the Lord's church is predestined. Anyway, that's for another day. So we have these fallacies, and you're not going to remember those. That's fine. I share them with you to show you that we have to be careful when we do a word study because there are errors we can make that fall in line with these these fallacies. So let's talk now about how to go about doing a word study. The first thing you need to know about doing a word study is you've got to choose which words you're going to study very carefully. You don't need to study every word. Most biblical passages are filled with words whose meanings are clear and plain to the average reader. If you try to do a word study on every word, you would get hardly anywhere. My grandfather, love him dearly, he loved teaching Bible class. But the way he taught Bible classes is he would go in-depth, deep dive on every word in the text— And so he could be studying the short little book of Philemon, and it might take him four quarters to get through that thing because he has to look at every little word and reference every verse in the Bible that uses that word, even down to the prepositions. I could not sit in one of his classes. He was my grandfather, and I refused to attend one of his classes because I was aging too fast before we got through a verse. You don't have to study deep dive on every single word. It's pretty easy to pick out the words that demand the in-depth study, the words that you need to spend time on. You are quite capable of that, especially after you spend the time doing the careful reading we talked about earlier. So choose, choosing your words is the most important thing, when it, or the, the, I should say the first step when it comes to doing a word study. And here's some guidelines for choosing which words to study. Look for words that are important or crucial to the passage. Find words on which the passage hinges. Look for words that are repeated. We've already done that in our uh, careful reading process. Words that are repeated are obviously being emphasized in some capacity. Look for figures of speech. That was another thing in our careful reading. You want, when you come across figures of speech, you want to note them so that you can go back, study the figure of speech so you can understand it. Also look for words that are unclear, puzzling, or difficult. Words that confuse you. Maybe not because you don't understand the English word, but because you don't understand how it's being used. Look for words that are unclear, puzzling, or difficult. So here's what we're going to do. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We've used this as an example before. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Looking at this passage, what are some words you think would be worth deep diving on? What words would be worth investigating? 
sacrifice. More importantly, living sacrifice. Isn't that an oxymoron to some degree? It actually is a figure of speech. So understanding what is meant not just by the word sacrifice, but the concept of a living sacrifice, definitely you want to investigate that. What's, what's another word or words? Acceptable is, does get repeated twice here. That one definitely wouldn't, be, wouldn't hurt. Even though we, we know what acceptable means in English, it wouldn't hurt to look into that one either. And then uh, perfect. What is meant by perfection? Any others? Transformed. When I hear transformed, okay, I'm a 1980s kid, I automatically think about the Transformers. So there's got to be more to this word than transformers. You know. What else? Renewal, that's a great word. Any others? What was that? Discern? Conform? I'm about to flash up on the screen what the authors of the book uh, suggested, and it'll give the reasons why they suggest it. Most of, them, most of what you said falls in that category. Here's what they pointed out. They, they focus on key verbs, key nouns, figures of speech, and anything that was either difficult or confusing. They referred to the spiritual worship, which is your spiritual worship. They saw that as difficult. What, what, is, what does spiritual worship mean? And it's even compounded by the fact if you pick this out in another translation, you have different terminology used in that particular part of the verse too. That's another way to find words that you need to deep dive on. Comparing translations and seeing where the translations differ on significant words is another good way to go about that. But they focused on key ver verbs, key nouns, figures of speech, and difficult or confusing terminology. They also put testing in the category of the difficult or confusing because they were trying to, they, they looked at it as what does it mean to that? What is, what is being tested and what does it mean to be? What does testing mean here? They looked at that as something that could be confusing to the, the English eye in particular. Here's another verse. Let's look at this one. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What are some words that you think would be worth investigating? Authority. Now that would be a key noun in this passage. What, what, what is he being by authority? What else? Observe. What, do, what, does, what does observe mean in this context? And I think paired with that, commanded. They can go kind of hand in hand in, in an investigation. What does he mean by that? What, what all does that include? What's some other words? Okay, and especially the concept of the Trinity is something you'd probably want to deep dive on. Okay. Yeah. That, that would be, so that's not as much a word study, and, and really what I just alluded to with the Trinity is not as much a word study as it is a concept study, but that's a, that would be a, not, not as much a word study as it is, but trying to figure out what does all refer to. When you do your careful reading, that would be something to circle all and then try to figure out what all includes. That's a great observation, though. What else? Baptizing. You notice that's the easy one for us to skip because we put such great emphasis on baptizing. But in a, in a study, even if it's something that's familiar to you, it still demands your attention. And understanding what baptizing means here is worth the deep dive. Do you realize I mean, do you realize the word baptize, baptism, all that? That is a transliteration, not a translation. It's worth investigating that kind of thing. All right, what else? And baptizing would fall in the category of a key verb here. What about? these. So authority they mentioned as a key noun as well as nations. 
Uh, and then key verbs, the idea of making disciples, baptizing, teaching, observe. They even marked end of the age. What is meant by the phrase end of the age? Do you know what the end of the age is? And in fairness, I'm about to give you some tools to help in this process in just a moment that will help you see that stuff like end of the age, that phrase could just be one word in Greek, and so it's a word study. But we'll get to that, that in a minute. Just trying to get you, these are not the words you have to study. These are just suggestions made by the authors. And you all have made some great suggestions too of things that they didn't mention. I would throw in here studying uh, on the, you got make disciples, which is a, a compound verb type thing. But I'd want to know more about the word disciples too, for the record. So the first step here is to choose which words need to be studied. The second step, or no, continuing, but the second step is to determine what the word could mean. When you pick out a word to study, your next step is to determine what it could mean. Now, don't misunderstand me. We need to determine what the word could mean before we decide what it does mean. Because most words can mean several different things, but we'll usually carry only one of those meanings in a particular context. So this step is to figure out all the possibilities before we narrow in by using context to the one possibility or the most likely possibility. By clarifying what a word could mean, we will not confuse the various meanings of a word when interpreting a particular passage of Scripture. The... Um, so the second step in the process after we choose a word to focus on, find out what it could mean. Now, here's an example using the terminology of spring again. If in the dead of winter your friend says, it's so cold I can't wait until spring gets here, he would be referring to the arrival of the much warmer season that immediately follows winter, not the arrival of a metal coil or an improved jumping ability. But before you can determine what it, the word does mean, you need to know the possibilities, particularly when you're dealing with a language that is not your, your primary language. And so, knowing the possibilities of, of the, what the word spring means then allows you to go through the mental process of eliminating the ones that don't make sense in context. And you do that naturally in your native language. But when you're dealing with a language that's not native to you, you've got to work through some of that. So you need to be able to recognize what the possibilities are for that word to mean. To determine what a word could mean, create a range of meaning or a semantic range list. That terminology of semantic range you'll see a few times. You're going to make a list of the possible meanings. A word's range of meaning or semantic range is a list of all the possible meanings of the word a list of what the word could mean. And some meanings may be very closely related, but you're going to have multiple meanings typically. It's kind of like creating a, a dictionary for that one word, a dictionary entry for that one word. Once we see all the possible meanings of a word, we will be in a better position to decide what the word actually does mean in a specific context. Now, here's what you need to understand. We're not actually focused on the English translation of the word. We're focused on the Greek or the Hebrew. But to kind of give you an example here, we're going to work from English for a moment. Just take the word hand in English. And this is a compilation of various ways in which the word hand could be used in English. There's what? One, two, three, four. I can't count the bullets. I'm trying to count on the bullets in one, two, three, four. There's like 11 different Meanings, possibilities up there. What you want to do is when you come across a word you want to study, you'll go to the sources I'm about to share with you and develop a list of the possible meanings of your term. Much like we have just done here with an English word. But you're going to do it with Greek and you're going to do it with Hebrew because that's the focus. Now, What you need to understand is you're not focused on the English possibilities. 
You're not taking the word as it appears in your translation in English and breaking down its possibilities. You're doing it with the Hebrew and Greek because then you're going to find how it connects. Now, look in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. Jesus, and I'm using the New American Standard here because the English Standard Version plays a little trick here and doesn't translate this word the same way every time, and that kind of hinders us a little bit. Matthew chapter 25, you have this word translated entrusted three different times, which I've highlighted in three different verses here in the parable. And this word translated entrusted, if you looked up entrusted in an English dictionary, you're going to find definitions like these, to confer a trust on, to deliver something in trust to, to commit to another with confidence. That's the English definitions associated with entrust. If you take the Greek word paradidomai and looked it up, you're going to find more options, five different options. To hand over something to someone, to deliver someone into the control of someone else, to betray, to commend or commit, to pass on traditional instruction, to grant someone the opportunity to do something, to allow or to permit. Now, the point there is, when you look at the uh, English you have much more narrow definitions than you do when you're looking at the Greek. And um, what you do, what you have is an overlap with the first one in each of these. That's translation there. That's how, you, that's how you achieve translation is finding that overlap. I want to move ahead. I'm trying to skip a lot because I'm running low on time and I need to get to something else. So this was another example. Um, wait. Always keep in mind that the original language word, the Greek or the Hebrew, and the translation word, which is English, are different words with different ranges of meaning that overlap to some degree. The overlap is what makes translation possible. Your task is to locate the point of overlap. In order to create a semantic range list, there's some tools you can use. You can consult a Greek-English lexicon and a Bible concordance. A Greek-English lexicon is a specialized dictionary providing English definitions for Greek terms. A concordance is a listing of all the words used in a book, often with a summary of how those words are translated into English. How many of you own a concordance? It's a fairly popular resource to have, and there are tons of them available. You can get them specialized into the translation you use. But concordances are fairly popular. How many of you own a Greek-English lexicon? Not as many, because they can be challenging at times. But there are, some of you have them, but they are very useful. Now, the point of this class is not to get you to go out and buy these sources, but if you want to snap a picture, there's a list of uh, some uh, well-documented lexicons for Old Testament study, and I'm about to flash up New Testament as well if you want that information. But, I'm about to show you how to do it online with something that's free. So there's Old Testament resources if you want them. There's New Testament if you want those. And if I didn't give you enough time, feel free to catch me after class. But I wanted to give these out there because I'm also going to be giving some other resources later. But if you want to do a word study and you, need, you don't have a concordance and you don't have a lexicon, I'm going to show you a couple of websites to go to. The first one is this www.stepbible.org. I was unfamiliar with this one until I, I, I obtained this book, and this is the one they recommend. This one has some limitations, which we'll talk, talk about in a minute, but it's very easy to use. Stepbible.org. You go to this website. First thing you do is you select your verse up there in the top left corner of the screen. You just type, you, you uh, start typing the, in, or, or you click on that little verse uh, box. And it's going to take you to a screen where now you select your verse. Simple enough. You're smart enough to do that. It will then take you to your passage. I've, uh, using the example from the book, we're using Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12 as our reference point. So it's taking me to Philippians chapter 3. And the word they want us to look at is the one that's uh, translated as press on, which I've circled on the screen right there. I know you probably can't read it from your distance. But the word press on is the word we want to investigate. You'll, if you, uh, once you're on this uh, website, you'll see the word, the two words, press on, in blue, because they're linking to something. If you click on that link, it then takes you to this screen. Now, notice you have a sidebar now with, called the word analysis. 
Over here on the right, you're given definitions and meanings related to that word. Uh, you even have it at the top of the screen. And what's interesting on this uh, particular website is other appearances of that word and related words get highlighted in that chapter in blue. So you can see press on gets used twice in this uh, chapter, chapter 3, verses 12 and 14. And it's a, it's a word that is connected to the word, the word translated persecuted. So the persecuted got highlighted back up in verse 6. Just to kind of give you a, an overview of how that word appears throughout that chapter. It's just a quick and easy resource to get to some word meanings. That's the only reason I've done this. I'm, I'm showing you this. And if you look on the word analysis side of the screen, it will say this word occurs about 122 times. If you click on the 122 times, it will pull up a screen showing you every usage of that word in the New Testament. And so you can, this is what a concordance does. So this website has a lexicon capacity to it, and then it has a concordance capacity to it. So you can get definitions of the Greek term. You can also get where and how it's used in that translation. You can do this in the Hebrew as well. I've just focused, I'm just uh, using the example of Greek. So you can do the Old Testament just as easily. Now, you can also change the translation. My screen is not working. It's cutting it off a little bit. But you can change the translation. This was built for the ESV. But it's not solely useful for the ESV. You can use other translations. One of the neat things about this website is you can go in here and select which translations you want to appear on your screen. And for the example purposes, I chose the uh, New American Standard, the NIV, and ESV, which you cannot see them listed because it's cutting off on that left side of the screen. But it shows all three verses. You can see at the top we have chapter 3, verse 21. Chapter 3, wait, no. Chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 3, verse 2, chapter 3, verse 3, and so on. And it's showing all three translations right one above each other. So you can do a comparison right there on your screen for every verse. The problems with this website that I have found so far are that, one, it does not include the New King James, which I don't know why it has the King James, but it doesn't have the New King James. The other problem I found with it is that, for instance, the NIV does not have links to words. The ESV, whatever word you want to study, it's got a link to it. You click on it and go. New American Standard, you click on the link to the, of the word and go. NIV doesn't have it for whatever reason. And, I, and there could be more translations that don't have those links. So there are some limitations uh, to this particular website. It's the one promoted by the book. It's the one from which the examples in the book were given, so I decided to use it. However, since there are limitations, I want to tell you about this other one that some of you are already familiar with. And that is the blueletterbible.org website. And this is one that I personally have used for a little while now. You go into the blueletterbible.org website. And up there at the top, you put in your verse. It takes you to your verse. And it appears on the screen, each verse is broken up of that chapter. I want to study the phrase, the word press on in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 3. If I go over here next to that verse, there's the word tools. If I hover over it, it brings that drop-down menu. And I can click on any one of those items in the drop-down drop menu. If I just click on the word tools, it takes me to this web, to this page, where it shows an interlinear version of the Bible. How many of you have used an interlinear version of the Bible? An interlinear translation shows you the Greek text and the English text alongside it, so that the word as it appears in Greek is above or next to the word as it appears in English, or the phrase in Greek and the phrase in English, however it needs to do it. What you can see here, well, you probably can't see, but what's on the screen is on the left side you have English, in the, and then you have a Strong's number, that's a concordance, the Strong's concordance number, that's a, a almost a universal identification method for these, these Greek words. And then um, you have uh, the root or the transliterated word in the middle there from Greek. So what I can do is I can scroll down until I get to verse 12. Over here on the left side of the screen, it says press on. It gives me the Strong's Concordance number 1377. And then in the middle, you can see uh, a Greek word that is 
Diaco, if I click on that Strong's number, it then takes me to this screen where it breaks down this word. I can get the root word etymology, I can get the part of speech, I can get the pronunciation, and you can click on the little soundbar to hear it said in Greek, and you can get uh, what it looks like in English. And you can start getting the definitions. If you scroll down on this same screen, you'll get your uh, definitions, your, your dictionary information here on this word from a, a few different sources, uh, your, your lexicon information, basically. And if you keep scrolling, you can come down until you see all of its uses, usages in the New Testament. So now you've got your concordance. Basically, what I'm saying is you can go to blueletterbible.org, go search any verse, and you can pull up all of the lexicon information, all the definitions, and all of the concordance information, all the usages, right there on the website. I'm trying to give you a tool that can aid you in doing a word study all by yourself. This is a tool that I use when I'm studying the Bible. It's a, a tool that anybody can use to some degree. So there you have it, free resources to help you study, do word studies. Um, by no means is it going to make you an expert in biblical languages, but it will be a resource that you can use if you really want to um, deep dive. Now, whoop, let me move on. The one rule in doing word studies that overrules all other rules is that context determines word meaning. So thus far, what we've said is the first step in doing a word study, choose your words. Don't choose every word, choose particular words. Second step is, when you've chosen your word, find out all the possible meanings. Do a, do a, uh, a word search study, as I showed you on Blue Letter Bible or on uh, stepbible.org, and, and do a, an investigation into all the possible meanings of that word based on what the, what the definitions are and what the usages in the New Testament are. And then you'll be ready to start trying to figure out what the word means in that specific context. Up to that point, you're focused on trying to figure out what it could mean. Now you're figuring out what it does mean in this particular context. Remember, context determines word meaning. If you take any word out of context, you cannot really tell what it means. One of the most reliable ways to let the context guide your decision is through a concept known as the circles of context. I did a diagram similar to this last week. Here's one that's a little bit more specific. You've got these different rings, these different layers of context. Notice the center one that is supposed to be pink. Man, those colors really do not work on this screen. The pink one in the middle is the actual word you're studying. And then the purple circle around it is the immediate context, the verse it's in, the sentence it's in, the, the specific passage it's associated with, that sort of thing. And then the next layer, which is supposed to be orange, is the same book. Where does that word appear in, the, in that same book that you're reading? The next layer of context would be anything written by the same author. So let's say we're studying Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. It's written by Paul. This layer, which is supposed to be yellow, the same author but different book layer, is I'm looking at how Paul used it elsewhere in his writings. Because an author can help, uh, an author's writing in a different part of the Bible or in a different book of the Bible, I should say, can have some level of impact on your understanding of a word in the book you're currently reading because it's the same author. And we have a tendency to use words in similar ways. And then the next, you'll also notice that after that same author, different book layer, there's a double line. That's because everything inward from that double line is the most important context. The immediate context, the same chapter context, the same author context. Beyond that, you're, you, it's still useful, but not as useful. Because outside that double ring layer, you get into the green. That's other New Testament authors. Not the same author, different New Testament authors. So if you're studying a word written by Paul, now you're adding what, how John might have used that word. Or how um, Luke might have used that word. How Peter used that word, and so on. Then the blue ring is the whole of the New Testament. Or you can do this with the Old Testament, too. You just have to um, swap out new for old in the terminology here. But the interior context is the most important. Everything from the same author inward is the most important context to focus upon because that's going to help you understand the word better. So when you're trying to determine what a word does mean, 
context impacts it. You've made your list of all that it could mean. Now start looking at the context of what is being written and work out which one is the most appropriate fitting. As you work to decide the most likely meaning of the word in its context, you may find the following questions helpful. For, is there a contrast or a comparison that seems to define the word? So, for instance, we can go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What is corrupting talk? Well, based on context, you have this contrast between corrupting talk and words that build up. But only words such only let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. So if building up is on the contrast side, then corrupting talk must be on the opposite end of that spectrum. Anything that brings down. So not this isn't just limited to profanity, it's anything that damages relationships. So that helps you get some context for what corrupting means, just because there's a contrast that appears in the verse. Another question to ask, does the subject matter or topic of the passage dictate a word meaning? So this is a very interesting one. Genesis chapter 39 and verse 14 and 15. This is when Joseph uh, flees from Potiphar's wife, and she is reporting to, uh, or she calls out for people to come into the room after he's left. She called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. He laughed. He came in to laugh? Has that ever laugh? She's bothered that he came to laugh? All right, so let's you do a little word study on that. Most of the time in the Old Testament, the word that's translated laugh here means to laugh or to mock or to play or even to make sport of. But its usage here, as well as in a couple of other locations, suggests something sexual. She's accusing him not of making, mocking her, but of something sexual. And if you go look at Exodus chapter 32 and verse 6, Abimelech notices out his window Isaac down there with uh, Rebekah, and he's laughing with Rebecca, and then drew the conclusion that that's his wife. I've never looked at a couple and saw them laughing and thought, they must be husband and wife. There's obviously some context there that, that gives an indication of that kind of relationship that only can be had in a marriage. Also, in Exodus, uh, that was actually Genesis 26, 8, not Exodus. But Exodus 32, 6, that's the Mount Sinai incident when, when the people asked Aaron to make them a, a new god. He, then he made the uh, golden calf. And it tells us that the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. The word play is actually the same word translated laugh here. And the idea isn't that they got up to make a mockery, it seems to hint at some sort of illicit sexual activity going on at the base of Mount Sinai among these people. It adds to the sin that they commit there in the worship of the golden calf. So anyway, you have context in other verses that help give you a meaning that is not as obvious when you look up definitions. But this is an example of how uh, context will help you determine a meaning if you spend enough time investigating and especially looking at the other verses that use the word. Now, another question you can ask is, does the author's usage of the same word elsewhere in a similar context help you decide which meaning best fits the word? John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. So it might be helpful to understand what the word world is being is a reference to now you know the answer to this but if you're studying this for the first time and you want to deep dive on the word world it helps to look at how john uses it and john actually uses the word i mean we have five different texts written by john and he uses the word world in a variety of ways but one of the primary ways that he uses it is in reference to human beings who have sinned against god and so when you look at context here and you look at how john has used that terminology in other areas it fits. When, when, uh, Jesus, when John writes that Jesus said, or when John writes this, 
about the world, he's not referring to creation. He's not talking about the planet Earth. He's talking about the people that comprise the world. And looking at how he uses the word world in other texts helps to determine that. So just an example there, a quick example. And finally, does the historical situation tilt the evidence in a certain direction? Here's an interesting one in Philippians chapter 1, and verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side in the faith of the gospel. The word from which we get that phrase, let your manner of life be, is a very interesting word. Uh, it is the word, let me, let me pull it up, politomai. It's the word from which we get the word politics. It's very interesting because it's in Philippians where Paul is going to tell the, church, the Christians in Philippi that they're citizens of heaven. And so what's interesting here is Paul is writing to a people in a historical context. He's writing to a people who are very proud of their Roman citizenship. And the, uh, one of the goals he has is to communicate to them that their citizenship in heaven takes precedence over their citizenship here on earth. And this idea of let your manner of life be, it comes from a word that refers to, do I have that? No, I have it in my notes. It comes from a word that means to be a citizen or to conduct oneself as a citizen. And so he's calling on them to be citizens of the gospel. But when you understand that background of the word, it helps you determine how to translate it. So, even the historical factors can play. Where? Oh, there we are. I'm at the end of the slide. So this was a lot, and this was not necessarily um, an easy listen as far as a study, nor was it an easy one to teach. Um, but word studies can be beneficial in your investigation of the Bible and sometimes are necessary. Just remember, when you want to study a word, first start by... Um, choosing words wisely. Second, figure out what the word could mean. And then third, use context to figure out what the word does mean in the text. That's the objective of a word study. Um, we will pick up next week. Uh, we've only got two, two Wednesdays left in this, study, this quarter of how to study the Bible, and we're going to focus, hopefully, on how to apply it next week. Thank you all for your attention and participation, and I hope you have a blessed week.